one semester of law school, one semester of criminal justice, two experts. I'm Kristen Caruso. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about Dutch Schultz. And I'll be talking about the ultimate Bob Moss. Al Capone. Oh, you think your Bob Moss is better than my Bob I Moss? Do, I think he's a more well-known Bob Moss. Yes, I've never heard of Dutch Schultz. Well, you're about to hear all about him. <laughs> <laughs> this is the uh, episode that was voted on by the patrons. That's right. We gave you guys a choice. Did you want to hear about art heists? <laughs> or Wow, okay. Or mob bosses, a.k.a. Bob Mosses. And uh, it was a landslide, folks. It was. Should we... Okay, for people who haven't heard the episode where you said Bob Mosses. Should we give a quick... Yeah, one time I was covering this case. I was very excited about it. I was like totally off script, just going like right off, nailing the facts right off the top of my head. (laughs) And then I was talking about how this guy was a a mob boss only. I was so excited and so into the story that I said he was a Bob Moss. And she was so into it, she didn't even notice until I I started dying (laughs) laughing. That was the kidnapping of Bobby Greenlee. Yes, it was. Um, And so... Oh, and Peanut just did a weird noise, and then Kiki did a weird noise. (laughs) Just professional podcasters here doing our thing. And so now this is the Bob Moss episode. This is the Bob Moss episode. The people voted for it. Where do these people vote, Kristen? I'm so glad you asked. You go to your local polling place, (laughs) and it only matters if you live in Florida, Ohio, Michigan. Just kidding. (laughs) Just join us over at Patreon, patreon.com slash LGTC podcast. If you sign up at the $2 level, you get to vote on episode topics and get case updates. At the $5 level, you get bonus episodes and you get to join the Discord. At the $7 level, that's the highfalutin level, you get all that. Plus, you get an LGTC podcast sticker. You get our little autographs valued at $11 billion. (laughs) And... Should we tell them about what we have cooking? Oh, okay. We got got hot new stuff coming to you Supreme Court members. Do you smell what the rock is cooking? (laughs) (laughs) We have got a new perk for Supreme Court members coming very soon that I think you guys are going to be really excited about. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Kristen, I do have one question, though. I'm very confused. Do you said it's LGTC podcast so patreon.com slash lgtc podcast is that a forward slash or a backslash (laughs) shit um it's forward slash isn't it we recently learned we recently after doing some research christian recently learned that you don't have to say if it's forward or back people will figure it out go on the world wide web at (laughs) www dot all right all right jerk Tell me about Al Capone. I'm going to talk about our buddy. <laughs> okay, so not our buddy, but Al Capone. I feel like he's one of oh, the... um, pronounced Cap One. It is not. <laughs> uh, it is rumored that their last name was pronounced Capone until they, like, immigrated to the United States and then they changed that it makes to sense. Capone. It's yeah. not actually true. Oh. But well, lots of people believe that to sense. be the case. Hang on, I'm going to readjust my mic. Oh my gosh, what is wrong with our mics today? I don't know. Neither we're, of us we're like not we're feeling oh, it. I need to open this before I open it like right on the right into the Yeah, that thing Ooh, is yeah. loud. ASMR. <laughs> you know, Al Capone hung out in Kansas City a little bit. Yeah, we had a we had a rough little city back in the day. Yeah, so Back in the mob days, it went like New York City, Chicago, and Kansas City for like the three top 
organized crime cities. Did you we, know that? We were we were the mm-hmm. we were the uh, bronze medal. Were we, we uh, were the bronze medal. Mob cities. <laughs> so Al Capone did a bunch of shit. I'm going to touch on some of like the bigger things and then talk about what finally brought him down. Or we will be here for you five days. You better have his entire life story prepared <laughs> today, Brandy. I do not. Oh, but what I will tell you is Al Capone was born. <laughs> Alphonse Capone, I believe. Oh, okay. Um, well, you don't even know his real name. I mean, well, I don't know how it's pronounced. Spell it. It is spelled A L P H O N S E. Alphonse. 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 Okay. Yeah. Anyway, Al was born in 1899, and it's actually a lot of people believe he was born in. Italy, and then came to the United States. He was not. He was actually the first member of the Capone, the Capone family that was conceived and born in the United okay. States. Okay, well, that's more than I needed to know. <laughs> so his mom was actually pregnant with his older brother when they um, immigrated to the United States. His dad was a barber. His mom was a homemaker who did, like, sewing stuff. Yeah. Um, but they were a very normal family from... Right in the middle class in in Brooklyn. The dad's dream was to come to the United States and open his own barbershop. And so he worked a lot of odd jobs until he was able to do that. And then he, you know, purchased a barbershop and the family, like, lived above the barbershop. Yeah. Um, growing up in Brooklyn, Al had a pretty, you know, normal life. No one would have guessed at a young age that he would go on to become one of the most, like, per- prolific mob bosses of his day. So as Al's growing up in Brooklyn, he um, takes on like some part time work at like the age of 14 for extra money. So at the age of 14, he like dropped out of of school. Um, He got in a fight with a teacher and he the teacher hit him. And so he hit the teacher back. It was like a female teacher. Apparently, this was super common in that day and age, because at that time was the early 1900s. He was born in 1899. So Uh and so, yeah, he just was expelled and never went back to school again. Um, It was super common to hit kids in school. Like oh, yeah. Through, like, the 60s. My yeah. grandpa was an elementary school teacher, and he had paddles. Oh, yeah. But, like, I don't know that it was super common for the kids to hit the teacher's back. But in no, a bunch of articles not. that I read, it was, like, teachers and students were constantly getting in fistfights. And teachers were often only a couple years older yeah. than their students. Even, like, at the age of 14, there'd be, like, a 16-year-old teacher. Yeah, so um, this is all about my grandpa. I believe his first job was to teach a one-room schoolhouse, and he was like 19. Yeah. (laughs) Which is insane. Yes. So he's done with school, and he gets kind of this job with this guy around the neighborhood who's kind of like, you know, kind of like a street gang leader. His name is Johnny Torrio. Mm -hmm. And so at a young age, Al starts doing like – side jobs for him and kind of gets in good with this guy. But then Johnny Torrio kind of goes off and and um, Al kind of, you know, stays. He works. He gets a, a job at a restaurant as a bartender through a recommendation from Johnny Torrio. And this is all everybody that he's working with in this time has some connection to like organized crime, racketeering, something like right. that. So it's actually while he's working this job in um, this bar that he gets it's in a fight that leads to the injury that would make him scarred 
Oh. Which would then lead to his nickname, Scarface. Uh-huh. So the way that this happened, the thing I read, was that this woman and this man came in and they were like sitting at the bar, or they sitting at a table at the bar, and Al like went up to wait on him, and he leaned down and whispered in the woman's ear that she had a nice ass and that he meant Whoa. that in a good way. <laughs> and the man that she was with was actually her brother, but he happened to be like in a rival mob than Uh the one that Al was affiliated with. And so he got up and he like slugged Al Capone and then he like got a knife out and he cut him three times on his face. Woo! Yeah. And then word got back to Johnny Torrio and to the leader of the other mob and they like all got together and Al Capone had to issue an official apology to this woman for insulting her. Wow. Yeah. But that's how he got the scar that was on his face that led to his nickname, Scarface. I think this is the key for all sexual harassment. That's Just to like right. slice their faces. Slice their face open. That's exactly right. By like 1920 or so, Johnny Torrio is running. Um, he's like the top member, one of the top members of the Colosimo mob in Chicago. So they're running like this really big, like underground liquor ring. They're doing sports betting. They're doing all kinds of crazy stuff in Chicago. And Chicago is like the wild, wild west at that time. Um, they pretty much have free reign of the city. And they're like, this is the place to be. Get out of New York City. The cops here are in our pocket. Like, it's super easy. Everybody in this Colise. Colosimo, I'm not sure that that's how it's pronounced, but C-O-L-O-S-I-M-O. Sure, whatever. Um, Like, every member of that mob has, like, a little card that they carry in their pocket that if they're ever, like, harassed by a police officer, they have to show them. Wow, they just pull it out. Yeah, and it's like, treat this person with the same courtesy you would a member of the force. Wow. Yeah. And so Johnny Torrio's like, come on out here. I need a second in command. And so um, Al Capone relocates to Chicago. And things are great until they're not, of course. Mm-hmm. Eventually, there's like an attempt on Johnny Torrio's life. The the guy in charge of the like the guy in charge of Johnny Torrio, like the Colissimo guy, he gets assassinated, uh-huh. and then Johnny Torrio's in charge. And then someone makes an attempt on his life, and he's like, "Fuck this, I'm out of here." He's like, "I don't want to be in charge anymore." He heads no, back. Better yeah. to be the number two guy. Yeah, and so he's like, "You know what?" Al, you're in charge now. Yeah, and so goodbye. Al Capone takes over the entire operation of um, what becomes known the Chica- as the Chicago Outfit. And they are just running Chicago. At this point, somewhere in the mid to late 20s, um, this Chicago Outfit is bringing in something like a million dollars a year between casinos and running illegal alcohol and Holy so shit. adjusted for inflation what you got it's like 1.5 billion dollars <gasps> yeah that's crazy isn't that nuts yeah oh what well okay so do you know like the most famous picture of al capone like when he's like getting ready to go on trial like just yeah, the, it's the close-up of his face yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. How old would you guess he is in that picture? Oh, God. I, I haven't seen that picture in a long time. Should I pull it up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He's probably only in his 30s. Hey, hold on, hold on. Okay. Um, This one right here, the first one on... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to say he looks... Gosh. 33. 
He's 33. I think he looks wow. so much older than that. No. Super. You think this man looks 33 years old, Kristen? Oh, well, no. You take the hat off. Yes. He looks 43. Yes. That's what a life of crime That's what a life of crime yeah. does to you. That's, that's hard sure. living. So along the way, he has married um, and he's had a kid. Mm-hmm. And at, at first, like his, his son is also named Al. Sure. Um, but it's a different version of... Of Al. <laughs> but he's Al Capone as well. It's Alf. Um, yeah, he's Alf. But his kid has, like, development issues, and they can't figure out what's going on with him. And um, he doesn't talk a lot, and he has trouble with hearing and mm-hmm. stuff like that. It turns out he has congenital um, syphilis. <gasps> because Al Capone had syphilis, and oh, it was, like, no. like, left completely untreated. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. I so didn't sli- know that, that. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. So, poor, poor Al Jr. No has has some struggles growing up. Well, I mean, in addition to his, in addition to his dad being Al Capone. Being Al Capone, yes. In nineteen twenty five, something would happen with the Chicago outfit that would like really kind of get Chicago kind of on alert and kind of scared. So they were used to lots of gang activity, lots of mob activity going on. It was just kind of something people were like, well, if I'm not involved in that, yeah, like, yeah. you know, they kill bad guys, bad guys kill bad guys. That's just kind of how it worked. Well, in 1925, the Al Capone's like bootlegging gang was getting tired of being harassed by different members of the law and like the, um, district attorney's office and so they did like a drive-by shooting where they open fired with machine guns and they killed um several bootleggers and then they also killed the assistant state's attorney the assistant state attorney bill mcswiggin oh bad idea bad idea really bad idea um and this really like brought an like a magnifying glass onto the violence in the city. Well, yeah, because you kill someone yeah. in that arena, and all of a sudden you've got the government looking at you. Exactly. And so authorities attempted to charge Al Capone with the murder of McSwiggin, but he fixed every grand jury. They sat six grand juries oh. and could not come back with an indictment. That is so shitty. It, it is. It's so shitty. It just goes to show you what power he had yeah. over... He bought everything. everybody. He bought everybody. He bought everybody. He bought everything. He had everybody in his pocket. It, it, everyone. There was nothing out of reach to him. Mm-hmm. Much like myself. Yes. <laughs> As I mentioned, the the members of the Chicago outfit are walking around with these cards in their pocket that say, "To the police department, you will extend the courtesies of this apart of this department to the bearer." Wow. Not not a please. Not a no, thank you. No. Wow, okay. You imagine. No. Just, <laughs> No. One thing about Al Capone, though, is he did not like the winters in Chicago. They were too cold. They were too windy. He's like Norman. He is like Norman. You're just like Al Capone. I am. <laughs> I'm just like him. Okay, tell them what you say every winter in Kansas City. Why do I live here? Yep. Every time we go outside in the wintertime, why do I live here? It's horrible. And then I have to remind you that that's the price of being married to this treasure right here. I mean, we used to live in North Carolina. Yeah, well. We could move back. No, we can't, because we're here for law school. I mean, whoops. 
<laughs> Whoops. Well, now that we have this award-winning podcast. That's right. That's stay. right. So when the winters would get too bad for him, he would just go away to Miami where he had this like palatial estate. It was surrounded by this 10-foot concrete wall and he would just issue his orders directly from Miami and have Hell his little yeah. henchmen take them out. So I... I gave you a statistic that was incorrect earlier because, of course, I was just doing it from memory and not from my notes at all. So by 1928, the Chicago outfit in its entirety was grossing an estimated $105 million a year. (gasps) Yes. A year? A year. Okay, you said 1.5. I said 1.5. Which I was impressed enough. 105. Okay, so that is what equals out to Uh, a billion. Equals out to, to, yeah, 1.5 billion. I thought that was some crazy inflation, but anyway... Adjusted for inflation today, that would be $1.5 billion. Gotcha. For all illegal activity. Yeah, I... That, that's amazing to me. What I think is amazing is that Al Capone did not think he was a bad guy. You couldn't. He thought of himself as a public benefactor. Mm-hmm. He said, I've given people the pleasures. Shown them a good time. This makes perfect sense to me. I don't think that you can live your life thinking you're a bad person yeah. on this big a yeah. scale. I think you have to tell yourself that you're mm-hmm. you're doing good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And he totally convinced himself that he wasn't a bad guy. He was just giving the people what they wanted. Yeah. They wanted a gamble? Great. Here's a casino. They wanted booze? Great. Let me run it to you. They wanted some bad guys murdered in an alley? Yep. Got it. Check. <laughs> <laughs> and he even managed to convince himself when he did have to kill people, that wasn't a, necessarily a bad thing. It was just part of the job. He's quoted as saying, killing a man in defense of your business is like the law of self-defense. It's a little broader than law books look at. Okay. Okay, buddy. (laughs) Your business is not the most important thing. It is if you're bringing in $105 million a year. Well, if anything, that means you can stand to take a hit. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, sometimes you got to kill people. And, uh, and... Capone just had to be okay with that. I do want to say real quick that I pulled the majority of this information from two sources. Okay. Um, Famoustrials.com. Oh, yeah. Our fa- one of our favorites. Mm-hmm. And then Crime Library. Yeah. So to give you an idea of how okay Al Capone was with having to kill, you know, mm-hmm. people Anybody. every now and again. Um, in May of 1928, Al Capone had kind of gotten word that there were some former associates of his that were planning to assassinate him. Mm -hmm. And so he decided to hold a banquet and invite those associates. See, these guys knew that they were plotting against him, but they thought that Al still believed that they were like on good terms with him. Right. And so they were like, great, absolutely. We'll come to the banquet. So they come, he feeds them, they get drunk. And then all of a sudden, the three men are like, find themselves in a room by themselves, tied to a chair. (gasps) surrounded by Al Capone's, like, henchmen. Oh, my God. And then in walks Al Capone with a baseball bat, and he (gasps) beats each of them to death with the baseball bat. Holy shit. Yeah. Can you prove it was Al? I mean, I wasn't there, Norm. (laughs) 
he bought her off. She can't prove it because she's going to say no. Oh, my God. Yeah. So this was is one of maybe the more well-known tales of Al Capone's, like, reign of terror on the city of Chicago, but it's not the most famous. Do you know what the most famous is? Okay. Fun fact about me. I know jack shit about oh, okay. Bob Moss's. Okay. So the most famous of all of Al Capone's um, hits or whatever is the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Okay. So this happened on Valentine's Day, 1929. Um, Al Capone was – there was – all of a sudden, there was competition swarming Chicago. Mm-hmm. There was a fellow bootlegging or a, a rival bootlegging gang kind of trying to move into the city and move into Capone's territory, and he wasn't having any of it. And that was led by Bugs Moran. And so somehow Al Capone got word of when they would be expecting like their whiskey delivery and so they were all at a chicago warehouse like a group of seven of these members of the bugs moran group were at this chicago warehouse waiting on this truckload of whiskey when all of a sudden a cadillac pulls in and four police officers get out Uh uh-huh they line the men up against the wall and they pull out machine guns and kill them all and it was al it was believed to be al capone's gang that killed, dressed as police officers that killed the members of Bugs Moran's gang. And then took their whiskey? Uh, I would assume so, yes. I mean, it'd be a shame to waste it. And as soon as it happened, Bugs Moran was like, I know exactly who did this. Mm -hmm. Only Capone kills like that. Wow. Yeah. So... By 1929, Al Capone's personal worth was estimated to be somewhere around $30 million. (laughs) But he had not paid a single cent in income taxes. In fact, he'd never filed a single income tax return in in his name at all. Hmm. And so I also read some information off of the FBI's website about Al Capone. And their website said something to the effect of... Um, at this time, the FBI had very little jurisdiction, jurisdiction, gosh, or jurisdiction, jurisdiction <laughs> over the organized crime that was taking place across the country. But really? what they did have jurisdiction over was tax crimes. <gasps> okay, this yes. all makes sense now. Okay, and yeah, so yeah. they knew they had to somehow get a handle on what was going on in yeah. Chicago. Yeah. And so they started looking into Capone because two years earlier in 1979, the Supreme Court had ruled that the Fifth Amendment did not protect against self-incrimination when it came to um, running an illegal business. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. So... It, they were you were still required to report profits from an illegal business. The Fifth Amendment did not protect you from that. When did that ruling come out? Do you know? So that ruling came out in 1927, and it was um, the United States versus Sullivan. Okay. Cool. So Manley Sullivan was a bootlegger who was convicted of failing to file a return showing profits from his illegal business, and so it was at that time that they made that ruling that we were like because. Yeah, the the argument is that, well, yeah, my Fifth Amendment right keeps me from self-incrimination. So, of course, uh-huh. I wouldn't file a tax return saying I'm doing illegal business. Yes. And they yes. said, nope, sorry, doesn't protect you when it comes to income taxes. That is fascinating. Yes. Okay, yes. Yeah. And so 
the Secretary of Treasury, um, President Herbert Hoover, like all the FBI, they all get in, start looking into Al Capone and trying to figure out if they can nail him on tax evasion. But it's really hard to prove. They set up an office in the Chicago Post Office building and they started trying to put a case together. They met with all kinds of people who could attest to Capone's um, extravagant lifestyle. They examined department store records, jewelry store receipts, car dealership, hotel records, any kind of evidence of Al Capone's spending. They uncovered purchases of furniture, custom-made clothing, diamond-studded belt buckles. What are you trying to say? What are you trying to say, Brandy? (laughs) But so much of this was difficult to track to Capone himself because it was done under all kinds of different names under Uh, the Chicago outfit, like, umbrella. Yes. None of it was directly tied to Al Capone. They were were going to need the help of someone inside to be able to nail this on Al Capone. Okay. And that wasn't going to be easy because people are terrified to turn against Al Capone. That just guarantees you're going to be killed, right? Yeah, with a baseball bat. Right. While people watch. Yes. No, thank you. Yeah. Um, You know, it's interesting. Did you watch Boardwalk Empire? No. Okay. So I am pretty sure that that scene is included in Boardwalk Empire. Okay. Where Al Capone beats the men to death with the yeah. with the baseball bat. Because Al Capone is heavily featured in, yeah. in Boardwalk Empire. It's so good. I can't believe you've never watched it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Norm, you seen it? Nope. What? Ugh, you guys are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so while they were successful in kind of like tracking down this evidence of expenses and stuff like that, they couldn't prove that Al Capone was actually like taking a salary of any mm-hmm. kind. And so it was just, it, it was almost like it was a dead end. It just was a whole bunch of stuff that looked very obvious, but nothing yes. concrete. Yes. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. So they kind of like start reaching out to members, maybe like people on the outskirts yeah. of Capone's group, just seeing if they could. Pick some kind of weak fruit off and see if they can get something. And somehow they start talking to this guy, Eddie O'Hare. So he was the owner for... um, As in Chicago O'Hare Yes. Oh, my gosh. What? Yes. Yeah, in 1949, Chicago built the new international airport and they named it after this guy. Okay, okay, continue. So I am he dying was also here. the owner of the patent for that mechanical rabbit that they use in greyhound racing. I don't know. Have, what you, have you ever seen a greyhound race? No. Okay, so in a greyhound race, before they let the dogs out, they take this <coughs> mechanical rabbit takes off, and that's what they chase around the track. Oh, okay. Yeah, and the mechanical rabbit has its own little track, and it just goes yes. around in a circle. Gotcha. Yeah, that's okay. how they. That's how they run. Yeah, chase it. So. He was very into dog racing and he ran the he ran the races for Capone, like uh-huh. in Capone's own, like, you know, part of his, you know, whole Chicago outfit or whatever. Right, right. He also did stuff for like he had set up races and all of that in in uh, Florida as well as Massachusetts, I guess. Anyway, somehow they get 
this guy talking to police and he's like, yeah, I know some stuff, but I'm, you know, terrified to, you know, uh-huh. go against Al Capone. And, and anyway, he ends up being one of the, he ends up getting, somehow getting them some ledgers that had been used to track expenses and income and all of that. And while none of them said specifically Al Capone's name, like one column in the ledger was labeled Al, while some of the other ones were named were named with names of other members who were okay. Like one was labeled Pete, one was labeled Ralph, right. one was labeled A, and so it was like while it didn't specifically say this is money that Al Capone is making, yeah. it was like not a leap to see that this was a record of income right. that was being paid to Al Capone. So gotcha. this was like a huge step in completing a a case against against Al Capone. Yeah. So. At the same time, they ma- they give those ledgers over to like a handwriting expert and they nail down who they think wrote all of these ledgers. And it's this guy named Leslie Shumway. He had signed a bunch of deposit slips that were linked to bank accounts owned by the Chicago outfit. And they brought him in and started talking to him. And he agreed to talk. He, he gave... Um, he signed affidavits saying, yes, that the that money on those checks, that ledgers, that was all stuff that was being paid to Al Capone. Yes, he could attest all of it. And so they took all that down. And then they very quickly shipped him off to California and like kept him protected yeah. so that nobody could come and kill him. Wow. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so in April of 1930, they're really getting a case together. And... Then they're like sitting there in their office one day, I guess. And Lawrence Mattingly, who's this attorney that was representing Al Capone, walks in and he's like, all right, we know you're putting together a case for Al Capone. You know, Mm -hmm. we're my client's willing to work with you. Let's work a deal. He hands him this letter and Uh he's like, this is what he's willing to attest to. He'll pay he'll pay taxes on this amount. And that's it. Like, no more. Final offer. That's exactly it. And so. How much was it? uh, Like, nothing. Okay. (laughs) Um, The letter uh, admitted to taxable income for, like, there were six years that they were talking about from 1924 to 1929. And the amounts that this letter claimed was somewhere between $26,000 in 1924 to up to $100,000 in 1928 and Mm -hmm. 29. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they're like, this is what we'll pay taxable income on. And if you want to take us to jail, max two and a half years. Uh, you don't get to decide that. Right. So at this, like, while all of this had been going on shortly before, kind of it, Al Capone had had some run ins with the law that he had not been really? able to get out of. <laughs> OK. So one had been they had been trying to get him to appear before a grand jury. And he kept coming up with excuses saying he was sick and couldn't do it. And finally, uh-huh. they held him in contempt of court. And he ended up serving like a year in jail over it. Wow. Um, yeah. And then there was another instance where he ended up serving like a year in jail. So he wasn't afraid to do a little bit of time. He knew he could still maintain his control. He had enough people, you know, working close to him on the outside that he was like, okay, I'll do a little bit of time, but I'm not giving up all my money and I'm not doing any more than two and a half years. Yeah. Yeah. And I know I call the shots, so they're definitely going to go for this. Yeah. Except they didn't. They didn't. Well, that's not even exactly true. Someone didn't go for it. Okay. Okay. Um, this letter 
the investigators kind of stowed away. And this would become kind of a really big talking point when we get to trial later. Okay. Because it was given to investigators by Al Capone's lawyer when Al Capone was not present. So did the lawyer have permission to be just handing over that kind of admission? Yes. Come on. Did he? How can you say for sure? And at like at these there. So there were a couple of these meetings that took place Uh where they're like, this is what we're willing to do and not a second more and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And at one of the meetings, Al Capone was present. And when he got up to like leave, he was like he asked the um, the like lead investigator. He's like, how's your wife? Oh, shit. And like, of course, that was seen immediately as a threat. Yeah. And so this guy's like, no, I'm not fucking around anymore. Like, we're taking this guy for everything we can get. Like, I'm not taking this piddly piece of paper like. How's your wife? How's your wife? Fuck off. Right? Ugh. Yeah. So finally, investigators, prosecutors, Al Capone and his lawyer agree on this plea deal. Mm-hmm. He'll plead guilty to X amount of dollars. He'll pay back the back taxes in, you know, some piddly amount. Sure. And he'll go to jail for two and a half years. They go to court. They present this to the judge. And the judge is like, I need to think about it. Wow. And so he, like, says, I'm going to take two weeks to think about it. Um, we'll, or I'm sorry, he gives himself like a month to think about. It. So they meet, they have a hearing on July, on June 18th. And he says, I'm going to think about this over and then we'll reconvene on July 30th and I'll tell you my ruling on the plea. So in the meantime, Al Capone's out there just like running his mouth. Oh, shit. He's like, don't worry, I got a plea deal. I'm not going anywhere. Like, And he's talking to anybody who will listen. And then, I think this is probably what really, really did him in. Because he made this big public statement about how, you know, I, I've been made an issue here. And, 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 you know, I'm not complaining. But why don't they go after all those bankers who took the savings of thousands of poor people that... Um, and lost them in the bank failures. Because think about the timing here. We're in yeah. the early 30s now. Yeah. The stock market crash has just happened. People lost everything. Banks failed. We've just entered the Great Depression. Yeah. Oh. And he's like, I don't know why they're making such a big deal about me. Well, why don't we look at all those banks? Uh-huh. And this did not go over well. Why not? <laughs> so when they, when they um, reconvene... The judge is like, nope, I will not accept your plea deal. Criminals don't get to make deals. Amazing. We will be going to trial. I'm changing your plea to not guilty. I love criminals do not get to make deals because criminals make deals all the time. (laughs) Yes. I feel like this judge was like, I'm tired of the organized yeah. crime that has just totally taken over this city, taken over the country at this yeah. time. Like, I might be able to have a small impact, and this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Yes. What year was this? Uh, it's 1930. Okay. Okay. Uh, 1931. I'm sorry. Damn it, Brandy. I was very close. Okay. So now, it's like two weeks before Al Capone's trial is to begin. And Eddie O'Hare, remember him? Oh, yeah. He comes to investigators and he's like, hey, Al Capone has the entire list of prospective jurors and witnesses. 
Shit. He's got his hands on all of them, and he's paying them off with $1,000 bills. He's passing out $1,000 bills left and right. I don't actually know that $1,000 bills still say, existed then. Okay. They did actually used to exist. I don't think they did by this time, but I think it's just like a, a yeah, yeah. figure he's, of speech. Okay. Wait, how was he still so well-connected that he knew this? Yeah, I don't know. Okay, that's fascinating. Yes, but he definitely... He had the inside news. So the prosecutor um, and the district attorney are like, fuck, what do we do? And so they take Eddie O'Hare and they take him to the judge and they're like, tell him what you told us. Yeah. And so he tells him and the judge is like, the attorneys and everything, they've spent hours looking into prospective jurors and whatever and all of this and getting their witness lists. And they're like, all of this work is going to go out the window yeah. if he has been able to bribe every single person involved in this trial. Sure. And so the judge listens and he said, um, well, I haven't yet received the jury list, so I don't know how Capone could have received the potential juror list at this point. Uh-huh. And so Eddie gives him a list of names. And when the potential juror list comes in, the names are an exact match. <laughs> Al Capone was more well-connected than the judge. Yes. And oh. so the judge was not concerned at all. He was like, bring what? your case. Gentlemen, bring your case into court as planned. Leave the rest to me. Well, what the hell was he going to do? It's awesome. Okay. Just wait. I'm so, I'm loving this. Okay, so it's October 5th, 1931. We're at the downtown courthouse in Chicago. Uh-huh. Capone is brought in. He's like looking smug Strutting. as fuck because mm-hmm. he's like, I bought my trial. Don't you worry. Yeah. Everything gets set. Everybody's sitting down. Judge Wilkerson, who is presiding, takes over. He gets on the bench. He looks out in the packed courtroom and then he says to the bailiff, Judge Edwards has a trial commencing today in another room. Go to his courtroom, bring me his entire panel <gasps> of jurors, oh. and take my entire panel and oh. give them to Judge Edwards. I am creaming my jeans. He, I know! He just at the last second completely switches out the jury, so there's no way they could be rigged. That is Amazing. Is that not amazing? Oh, like, I, how did he even come up with that? Did they have video of all the people going, <laughs> <"Dum-dum!"> right? <laughs> Should I edit out cream? No, I love okay. you said cream. Your I didn't even know you could do that. That's amazing. No, I didn't either. Amazing. I'm guessing it would not work in today's court system, but because the defense and the prosecution all have a say in who yeah, yeah. is seated on the final jury, but. Well, I mean, I I guess there's... Except that at that point, they hadn't actually set the jury. That was just the jury pool. So he just brought in a fresh jury pool. Oh, yeah. So that would... That could still happen today. I love then they it. set to, uh, they set a jury of 12 members from that pool instead of the tainted one. That is, that is the best thing ever. So those other jurors were like, hey, this is great. I just got thousands of dollars. <laughs> yes. And I don't have to lie about anything. And I'm no longer involved in any way with Al Capone, I, I hope. <laughs> By the way, fact check. They may have been handed a $1,000 bill. They were in really? circulation, they were still in circulation until then? 1946. Okay. That is crazy. That is crazy. So do you know why they stopped doing um, 
denominations that big? No, why? Because it came, it was a problem for drug running because it became really easy to transport large amounts of money <gasps> in yeah, and out of the money country. laundering. Yeah. Oh, I had no yeah. idea. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I mean, yeah, I guess a briefcase full of yeah, thousand yeah, dollar bills. It's a pretty light briefcase. Yeah. So finally, a jury is selected. I love Twelve it. members who are not tainted, uh-huh. and the trial is underway. The assistant U.S. attorney Dwight Green laid out twenty the twenty three charges against Al Capone. Um, they were all tax evasion, and he, you know, explained how this man is rolling in dough and he hasn't paid a dime to the government. Uh huh. And that's the worst thing he's ever done. <laughs> The prosecution presented um, all kinds of evidence that Capone owned gambling halls um, and drew tons of profits from those and that he owned all kinds of other things, um, smoke shops, gambling machines. He was running alcohol. Yeah. All kinds of things that were bringing in all kinds of money. They called Leslie Shumway to the stand. He's the guy that was like, yeah, those checks were paid to Al Capone. They oh, were, that was the guy that they were able to match his handwriting to the ledgers, and that's how they tracked him down and sent him off to California for safekeeping. Another guy, and I can't remember who, where I read this, but another guy who was going to be called as a witness, they sent off to South America for safekeeping. because well, they that's were where like, I would want to go. Yeah, like, as far away as yeah, possible. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so the, he talked about how he did all of the accounting, everything for all of the gambling halls. And he estimated that for the two years that he had worked there, he had recorded over $550,000 in profits. But he stopped short of um, identifying Al Capone as his boss. He wouldn't do it. Wow. Yeah. Was that just fear? I think so, probably. Yeah. Or he felt he owed him. Or if he did it, that he, okay. uh, he would surely die. Yeah. Like, maybe that was the last thing he thought he could do to possibly save his life. Yeah. You're testifying against Al Capone. I would... I'd have the Bed Bath & Beyond bag <laughs> strapped to me the whole time. <laughs> so remember that letter that I told you about? That, um... That... These are my confessions. <laughs> yes, yes. That Al Capone's lawyer gave to yes, the prosecution yes. and was like, this is all that we'll admit to. So the prosecution wanted to bring this up as evidence Absolutely. at trial. Of course they did. But the defense said, uh-uh-uh, a lawyer cannot confess for his client. This mm. should not be admissible in court. Mm. And Right? Yeah. It's true. Yeah. It is true. A lawyer cannot confess. Said He said that this Capone never meant to give his lawyer the authority to make statements that may get him into prison. Uh-huh. And that, uh, sorry, too bad, so sad. The jury can't see it and you mm. can't present it as evidence. And so the judge, like, thought it over and he said that the jury could see the letter just as evidence that it existed. Okay. And that the prosecution could make the claims they wanted on it, but that the jury couldn't take it as fact. Okay. What do you think about that? I couldn't take it as fact. Yeah, like they they could see the letter and they could see that yes, what the the claims that the prosecution are making, there is a letter that that kind of matches those, but they can't take that as a confession from Al Capone. Okay. Because it wasn't a, written directly by him. He didn't give the authority. Okay. 
You don't like that? You think the jury shouldn't have been able to see it at all? No, I think... Uh, I I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, so this is the official... <sighs> this is the official decision that the judge said. The letter would be admitted to show that the statement was made. Mm-hmm. But the contents of the letter could not be considered by the jury as proof of a confession. I think it is a confession. It is a confession. That's exactly right. I, that's. I think that's so contradictory. Yeah, I think that. I. You know what I'm struggling with. I'm coming down on Al Capone's side, and I don't want to be on this <laughs> side. The prosecution had called several witnesses who mm-hmm. said, you know, they worked in, they'd been affiliated with, somehow, you know, involved in the Chicago outfit. They knew millions and millions of dollars were being brought in. And, of course, Al Capone was taking his share of it. The defense presented its case in a single day. They tried to present, <laughs> this is a terrible argument. They said Al Capone was a horse rating, racing addict. <gasps> and that he'd lost as much money doing that oh, as okay. he had... As his businesses had earned. So. And yet he had an amazing place in Miami. This is why this is a terrible argument. Okay. Because gambling losses are only deductible against gambling winnings. You can't deduct them against earnings. (laughs) So it doesn't fucking matter. (laughs) So even if like that defense had been accepted by the jury, it still wouldn't have outweighed the income that he still would have had to claim. Amazing. Yes. Yeah. It was a terrible defense. (laughs) (laughs) They brought in a couple bookies to testify and Mm -hmm. showed that uh, Capone lost somewhere around $327,000 over six years, which would have been nothing. Yeah. It's like, yeah, to a normal person, that would be just staggering. Yes. To him, not so much. Yeah. In in the defense's closing arguments, they said, like, you know, hey, this is the oppressive government at no. work here. Oh, don't, okay. Don't hold our poor boy Al <laughs> accountable for what this government... Have you seen what the government is doing right now, folks? <laughs> Which, again, I think is a terrible argument. Uh-huh. He said, don't convict Capone merely because he's a bad man. He may be the worst man who ever lived. (laughs) But there's not a scintilla of evidence, which I don't know what a scintilla is. (laughs) A scent. There's not a scintilla of evidence that he willfully attempted to defraud the government out of income tax. Well, yes, there is, sir. There's plenty of scintillas. (laughs) And then somehow at the end, he completely switched gears and he was like, "Uh, you know, Capone's not actually that bad. He's an open-handed, generous, kind man who never fails a friend. You know, he's kind of like Robin Hood. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, he's the worst or he's the best. I mean, what is he, dude? Exactly. Exactly. He is not the miser or tin horn or piker that the government would want you to believe. What the hell is a piker? I don't know. (laughs) It's an old-timey insult. How do you spell that? P-I-K-E-R. A gambler who makes only small bets. <laughs> I think that's a terrible argument. Yeah. <laughs> In Australia, it means a person who withdraws from a commitment. Mm. He said, You, gentlemen, talking to the jury, right? 
are the last barrier between the defendant and the encroachment and perversion of the government and the law in this case. Can we pause for me to wipe my tears? (laughs) My goodness. Um, then the prosecution got up and gave their closing argument and they were like, Capone himself calls himself a gambler, a realtor, a cleaner. Hmm. And, uh, he lived like a bejeweled prince. (laughs) He spent thousands of dollars without thinking twice. And then he talked about the incriminating nature of the letter that the, you know, jury had been allowed to see, but not take into account. He said, look, Listen, this guy was willing to go to jail for two and a half years over this. Yes. Come on. Um, He told the jury that even a child could deduce from Capone's lavish lifestyle that he had a huge income. Yeah, he was a vajazzled prince. Yes, (laughs) a vajazzled prince. Um, (laughs) And he he finished his... um, his closing argument by saying, this is a case that future generations will remember. They will remember it because it will establish whether a man can so conduct his affairs that he is above the government and above the law. Mm. I actually think that's a really good yeah. point. That's a really good argument. The jury deliberated for eight hours. What do you think they found? Do you know? I don't. I, okay. I'm so clueless about this stuff. Did they yeah. find him guilty? They found him guilty. Okay, wow. Yeah, they found him. They found him guilty. And six days later, he was sentenced mm-hmm. to 11 years in prison. It was wow. the longest term ever handed down for tax evasion. Yeah. As Al Capone was let off in handcuffs, he yelled, I'm not through fighting yet. All of his appeals failed. <laughs> <laughs> And Capone was sent to um, the federal penitentiary to serve out his sentence. He started um, initially in Atlanta, and then he was transferred to Alcatraz. Um, and I think so. I think it's like widely remembered that he spent like the rest of his life in prison, or he died in prison. It's uh-huh. he didn't. He was released in prison in 1939 after serving less than eight years. Okay. But he completely lost control of the Chicago outfit by that time. Of course. And actually, a lot of people credit him going to prison with, like, the downfall of organized crime in general. Wow. Um, It didn't end with that. But it became much less prolific and, like... Well, yeah, once you take out the head guy and he's away for 11 11 years years. for tax shit, that's going to scare some people. So it was still definitely going on in like the Chicago underground it just was not as prevalent so he was released in November of 1939 and he was like super sickly at this time Mm. he was dealing with all kinds of problems from late stage syphilis he had never been treated for syphilis he was referred to um, Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore and they refused to treat him based on his reputation they would not see him they would not admit him and so he went to union memorial hospital which is there in baltimore and they took him in and they gave him care and like he was treated there for several weeks huh yeah so from like november of 1939 to march of 1940 he was there receiving care for all of these ailments that he had because of this syphilis 
he was so grateful for this care that he received that he actually donated two Japanese cherry trees to Union Memorial Hospital in 1939. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so he was released um, from the hospital after receiving this care in March of 1940, and he went to Florida to live out the rest of his days with his family. Um, he lived at his, you know, kind of, he still had that palatial estate in Miami. He lived there with his wife and his grandchildren, I think. He was able to keep that somehow wow. you know okay they could only prove like a yeah, small okay. amount of money okay. so yeah fair fair um and then on january 24 21st 1947 al capone had a stroke he um briefly regained consciousness after it but he died um of cardiac arrest uh a couple days later wow yeah Originally, he was buried at Mount Olivet Cemetery in mm-hmm. Chicago. Mm-hmm. But in 1950, his remains, along with several of his family members, were moved to Mount Carmel Cemetery in Hillside, Illinois. Wow. Yeah. Um. So why did the O'Hare guy get the name, the airport named after him? Just they were grateful? I think they were just so grateful for what he had done. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was very brave. And it could be, it could be. There could be other reasons behind it too. He might have yeah. he, he was he turned informant, so he probably like informed on lots of other stuff too. I'm guessing. Gotcha. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's amazing. The, that's the story of Al Capone and how tax evasion brought him down. Well told. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> okay. Aww. Oh, look at the geeks. You guys, Kiki's on Norman's lap. It's very cute. Okay, you guys ever heard of Dutch Schultz? No, never. You, Norm? Uh, it sounds familiar. I had never heard of him. I think this story is fascinating. Excellent. Okay. First off, shout out to Wikipedia. Big fan. For the court stuff, Wikipedia will let you down. So you got to go to the book, The Last Testament of Lucky Luciano, The Mafia Story, in his own words. Uh, not written by him, interestingly. It's written by uh, Martin Gosh and Richard Hammer. Have heard of Lucky Luciano. Sure. Yes. Are you a big Bob Moss fan? I'm really not. Like, but I do. There's a couple that I think are really interesting. Lucky is one of them. Okay. Okay. I got really into Boardwalk Empire. So. <laughs> <laughs> also, old timey disclaimer. I'm not going to go into it. You guys know yes. what the old timey disclaimer. Insert old timey disclaimer okay. here. Very Same good. with mine. Yeah, I'm doing a. I'm doing a back. Oh, oh you roll your eyes and yet yeah. you would like the old timey. I would like disclaimer. it as well on mine. What if someone's starting with us episode? Okay, oh. quick old timey disclaimer means that this case is old. There's lots of conflicting information. We went with what seemed most accurate. Yes. Okay, very good. Let's talk about a Bob Moss named. But Dutch, (laughs) (laughs) named Dutch Schultz. Let's. He was born Arthur Simon Flegenheimer. Oh, great! I would have changed my name to Dutch (laughs) Schultz. (laughs) Okay, so he he had a funny line. He said he changed his name because Flegenheimer was too long for newspaper headlines. (laughs) So fair. He was born in 1901, and when he was like. Around nine years old, something bad happened at home. Uh-huh. It appears his dad just took off, uh-huh. and he abandoned Dutch, Dutch's little sister, his mom. Um, it could also be the case that the man died, but it seems much more likely that, yeah. you know, it was. it's way better to say that your husband died than that he 
took off. Yes. Or that you're divorced in 1910. At any rate, with his dad gone, Dutch had to step up to the plate. So he dropped out of school in the eighth grade and began working. He started work at a bunch of different places, but toward his late teens, he started working at a nightclub, which is run was run by like, I'm calling everyone a mob boss. Obviously, yes. everyone's not a mob boss. This guy was like a baby mob boss. Right. But fun fact, mentors are everywhere if you look for them. And you can still <laughs> learn a ton from all kinds of people. And that's exactly what Dutch did. And he got super into petty theft and burglary. Okay. He wasn't great at it, though, because he, like, immediately got caught breaking into someone's apartment. Mm -hmm. So when he was just 18 years old, he went to prison. But our dude Dutch was a bit of a handful. Mm -hmm. And the prison was like, holy fuck, what are we going to do with this kid? He's too damn much. So they sent him to a work farm in Long Island. So Dutch went off to the work farm, escaped. They found him somehow. They were like, don't you dare do that again. We're adding two whole months to your oh, sentence. Two whole young months. Man. Yeah, right? Can you believe that? And Dutch was like, absolutely. I will stop being a bad guy starting now. <laughs> Dutch got out of prison in December of 1920. And even though he was out on parole and should have been behaving himself, that was not his style. No. He went to work for Schultz Trucking, which sounds perfectly legit. But it was actually just, like, smuggling tons of alcohol yeah, yeah, in yeah. from Canada. Um, just like your case, this was happening in Prohibition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. turns out was not a great idea. It had a ton of unintended consequences. <laughs> <Yes>. Like, it <laughs> allowed the Bob Mosses to thrive. Yes. <laughs> so, now we're in the mid-1920s. And Dutch got a job as, like, I think he was a bouncer at the Hub Social Club. Mm. It was the speakeasy in the Bronx, and it was run by a man named Joey No. Joey thought Dutch was the best. Dutch was this gigantic asshole who got <laughs> mad very easily. So one day Joey was like, yo, Dutch, I like the cut of your jib. What? I'm a, I'm a big fan. You ever heard that? I like no, the cut of your the jib. cut of your jib. What is that? Just like, I like you. I like your oh, style. It sounds like he likes the outline in his pants. Oh, God. That's what that sounds like. Is it? Hang on. Normally thinks. Is that what that sounds jib. like? Yes. <laughs> um, One's general appearance or personality, as in, I don't like the cut of Ben's jib. <laughs> That's... <laughs> Notices his bulge. <laughs> <No>. Ooh, <laughs> a jib is a sail at the front of a yeah, sailboat. Yeah, a jib is. It's a, <laughs> do you? It means I like the way yeah, you look. I, I like am. I like your front sail. Yeah, that I oh, like the okay. cut of your front sail. Okay, yeah. Joey looked at Dutch and was like, "I like the cut of your boner." No, that's not, that's not how this works. Hey, no one said he had a boner. <laughs> yeah, he's just checking out his moose knuckle. Okay, okay. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. You can say creamier jeans. I can't say moose knuckle. <laughs> yeah, when I take over, it's like a classier time, Brandy, okay? <laughs> so he's like, I love the front of your sailboat. I want to promote you. I want you to join me as partner. So these two became long-term friends. They were excellent business partners. They franchised their little speakeasies all over town like little Whataburgers. <laughs> And they met this lovely little home brewer in Union City, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So they drive out to him with their own trucks, get their beer, and take it to their speakeasies. So, in other words, there was no middleman. They were just yeah. making all this money. Yeah. They were killing it. 
There was just one problem, though. Alcohol, despite being super illegal, was also quite popular. Yes. And so Dutch and Joey had competition. The competition came from a lot of other guys, but Mm -hmm. two of these guys were John and Joe Rock, these two brothers. Mm -hmm. So they went to John and Joe, and they were like, hey, lovely little operation you got here. How about you start buying your beer from us? And they were like, no. No, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) We're good. (laughs) So Dutch and Joey put the pressure on them. And finally, the older brother said, fine, fine. We'll buy your beer. But the younger brother was stubborn. And he kept telling them, no, we're not going to buy your beer. So how did Dutch and Joey solve this problem? How? Well, you know... They didn't overreact or anything. They just simply got their gang to go kidnap this younger brother. Oh, good. They beat him up. They hung him. This is so bad. They hung him on a meat hook from his thumbs. And then they took a bandage, which was soaked in gonorrhea discharge. Oh, God. And they oh, wrapped it. I can't know. <laughs> and they wrapped it. Last. <laughs> <laughs> They wrapped it around his eyes. I have a question. <laughs> Where do you even get gonorrhea discharge? Norman, from the cut of someone's jib. <laughs> it, the whole bandage was soaked <laughs> in gonorrhea discharge? How did they even get that? It's incredible they even got that. Well, I'm glad you're impressed. <laughs> That's a real misuse of the word incredible. Ripley's believe it or not. <laughs> That's what they did to this man. Oh, my gosh. Meanwhile, his family was freaking the fuck out. They ended up paying like $35,000 for these horrible people to release him. Obviously, the dude went blind. I mean... Yeah, he's gonorrhea discharge in his eyes. Too much gonorrhea discharge. Oh. (laughs) Is that not the nastiest thing you've ever heard? It's so disgusting. And how did it smell? Oh, how do you think? Oh, it smelled great. It smelled great. He's like, it's like those Febreze commercials where they oh, And they're like, am I in a spa? Am I in the meadow? No, you have gonorrhea discharge wrapped around your face. And that's a meat hook in your thumbs. Oh, Febreze's newest scent. Gonorrhea discharge. <laughs> You guys, we are sponsored by Febreze, so next time you're at the store, mention us at checkout. Um, You're not going to believe this, (laughs) but once word got out about what Dutch and Joey had done, people really didn't mess with them. (laughs) Turns out nobody wanted the gonorrhea discharge. Yeah, like blood dumpster. Yeah, do we need to trademark this? <laughs> so, you know, all of a sudden nobody's messing with them anymore, yeah. and they are just making more money than ever before. Um, but it was hard out there for a mob boss, because even though there was a lot of money to be made, you had to deal with just the worst people yeah. on earth. And as Dutch and Joey's gang grew bigger, they started to catch the attention of larger, more established Bob Mosses. 
And these guys had never heard of the concept of sharing. Mm -hmm. So in particular, New York's Irish mob was led by this guy, Jack Legs Diamond. Mm. And he was not thrilled when Dutch and Joey's gang moved their headquarters into his territory. Yes. So in October of 1928... He cut their legs off. Uh, yeah, how did he get the legs? I want to know. What if he just had real nice had legs? Real nice hands. <laughs> so someone, or maybe multiple someones, probably multiple yeah. someones, tracked down Joey No to a speakeasy located at 231 West 54th Street, New York. New York. It's kind of lame. It's just a Marriott now. I I know. Sorry. This Marriott used to be a speakeasy? It sure did. Hmm. Wow. So they shot him, and Joey fired back, and then, you know, the killers jumped into a blue Cadillac, they fled the scene, they hit a bunch of cars on the way, at one point they lost one of the car doors, it it was a mess, (laughs) I realize it sounds like they misplaced one of the car doors, (laughs) fell off along the way somewhere. When the police finally found the car, they discovered the dead body of a man named Louis Weinberg in the back. Joey No held on for like a month. Mm-hmm. But eventually he died from his injuries. This left Dutch grieving and desperate for revenge. And this may surprise you, but he kind of overdid it. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> he knew that Jack Legs Diamond had ordered the hit. So Dutch, Dutch was like, fine. You kill my long-term friend, I kill your long-term yes. friend. See how you like it. So Dutch ordered a hit on Jack's close associate, Arnold Rothstein, and, you know... Sure enough, he dies. Yeah. Okay, was that enough? No. No, of course not. Two years later, Jack Legs Diamond was chilling in his Jimmy Jams at the Hotel Monticello in Manhattan. Monticello? Monticello. Okay. It's only Monticello if you're talking about Thomas Jefferson. Okay. When two gunmen burst into his hotel room, they shot him five times and fled. Jack sat there with five bullets in him. Drank two shots of whiskey, stood up, walked out to the hallway, and fired back. What? I, you know, all these stories about these Bob Mosses, it's always, but they fired back. And I'm wondering, there's no way. No. But it's a good story. It is a good story. Did he die? Um, well, this happened in the 30s, so yeah, eventually he did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, so Jack eventually recovered. What? From five gunshots? Yeah, I'm wondering, what kind of guns were these? BB guns? Yeah. <laughs> pew, 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 pew. <laughs> he was rushed to the hospital, and eventually, like, after he recovered, he went to Europe for a while. But in the meantime, his gang disbanded. This is the problem with being a Bob Moss. You go away for tax evasion yeah. for 11 years, you know, things kind of fall apart. So in 1931, he came back to New York. He was ready to kick ass and take names and get his territory back. And Dutch had him killed. Yeah. So, you know. (laughs) You can't always go back home. No. (laughs) So our boy Dutch was super busy. Just slam-packed, planner, just filled, (laughs) ordering all these killings. And becoming the best little Bob Moss that he could be. But, you know, Dutch wasn't just a cold-blooded killer. He was also a boss-ass bitch. No okay. He had all these employees, and frankly, some of them were a little ungrateful <laughs> because 
the way these things normally worked in like a little mob gang, yeah. I guess, is that you go out, you do some illegal thing, and everyone gets their cut. Yeah. But with Dutch, he didn't do it that way. He gave all of his employees a salary. Oh, yeah. Which was totally not not the norm. Yeah. And some of them didn't like it. And one of those dudes was Vincent Cole. And Vincent came to him one day and was like, look, boss, I've been working my ass off for you. I deserve a raise. I want to be your partner. Why don't you make me your long-term friend? Excellent. And he's like, Vinny, I hate your face. Pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) Dutch was like, no. Yeah. There's one leader of this criminal enterprise. me. And you're looking right at him. (laughs) Vincent didn't take it very well. He was like, fine. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start my own gang. Oh, shit. And you know the number one job of my gang? It's going to be to murder you. (laughs) (laughs) And then, once you are dead, we will take over everything. Ooh. So that's exactly what Vincent set out to do. For like two years, there was just a ton of bloodshed. Dozens of people died. It was really bad. At one point, a child was killed, which I didn't read up much on this, but it just seemed like the kid was in the wrong place at the wrong time. No one had set out to kill a child. But like, you know, you're killing all these people. Yeah. You know. But guess who came out on top? Dutch. You betcha. (laughs) He set a trap where Vincent would be lured into like a phone booth at a drugstore. And once he was in there, a bunch of dudes burst into the store with machine guns and killed him. Oh, my gosh. So Dutch Schultz remained powerful. He was violent. He was ruthless. He was a total asshole, feared by a ton of people. And for good reason. Yeah. But then, like, prohibition was starting to end. And his main source of income, oopsies, was no longer this cash cow. Yeah. But like any good CEO, he knew how to pivot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what did he pivot into? He created a fun little lottery for people to play. Smart. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's illegal, but still. Okay. <laughs> um, it was like a you pick three lottery. Uh-huh. And he had a new one every day. It was super popular. People loved it. Only thing was. It was rigged. Nobody ever yeah. won. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not that no one ever won. It was that he hired this guy who was like a math genius. Uh-huh. And he like knew the odds. He knew how to work it in his favor. So your chances of winning in this lottery mm-hmm. were like non-existent. So all of a sudden he's got tons of money coming in from that. Yep. But that wasn't enough. Oh, by the way, I should mention. Dutch was making tons of money. Um, not paying a cent in taxes. Just a little foreshadowing for you, mm. in case we're wondering what happens to Bob Mosses. In addition to that, Dutch began running the Metropolitan Restaurant and Cafeteria Owners Association. Excellent. Yeah. Until you find out that he forced restaurant owners and restaurant workers to join his organization and pay him money. Okay. And if they refused... No big deal. That was totally fine. No, he would just beat the shit out yeah, of them. Yeah, I was going to say. And then if you were running a restaurant, he would throw a stink bomb oh, good. into your restaurant. So good luck keeping people Great. in your restaurant that smells like pure shit. Excellent. Yeah. As the years passed, Dutch was getting richer and richer and more and more notorious until finally he was indicted for income tax evasion in 1933. <gasps> oh! This is how they get you. That's how they get you. 
I don't know if you heard about this Al Capone thing. Who? <laughs> I think it's Capone. <laughs> so he needed to stand trial, obviously. Yeah. But uh, the police were just having a hell of a time tracking him down. <laughs> so I saw a few different reasons. I saw some things saying like, yeah, he was out and about. People knew where he was. And obviously there were a lot of cor- corrupt politicians, a lot of corrupt people at that time. And, you know, maybe you, even if you weren't a corrupt police officer, maybe you don't want to be the one who takes his life into his own hands trying to get some mobster for tax evasion. Yeah. So anyway, bottom line was he was kind of hiding out. He was not turning himself in at all. So he's either like hiding out or hiding in plain sight, whatever. Yeah. Bottom line. Dutch was freaking out. He did not want to go back to prison. And he knew that a jury would find him guilty. I mean, yeah. he'd been making millions of dollars. Yeah. Hadn't paid a cent. He knew. <laughs> he knew what was going to happen. He said, well, what year is it? This was 1933. Okay, so Capone had already gone down. Okay, well, there yeah. you go. There you go. Yeah. So he's like, fuck, this is how they yeah. get you. <laughs> 11 years. <laughs> So this whole time that he was in hiding, he was consulting with his shitty, corrupt lawyer named Richard Dixie Davis. Mm. Richard Dixie Davis, he'd always he'd always sought his counsel. This guy was like Saul Goodman. Yeah. One day while Dutch was still in hiding, Dixie came to him with an idea. He was like, how about we just make all this go away? Yeah. We will. Great idea. These, this men in black <laughs> we will offer the government a hundred thousand dollars as settlement for all your back taxes mm-hmm. in exchange for dropping the charges mm-hmm. sound familiar yeah so he he got this idea from al capone's lawyer <laughs> uh but it didn't work for al capone and it didn't work for dutch schultz either yeah. when dixie approached the government with this offer they said we don't do business with criminals. <laughs> yep. So finally, you know, one source said two years. Another source said one year. After a lot of hiding, um, Dutch got so paranoid that the FBI was just going to find him and murder him that he turned himself in in November of 1934. What? He thought the FBI would murder him? Yeah. So That's probably I, the last people that would murder him. Um. No, I, and I, shit, I didn't write it in my notes. They they were really cracking down on organized crime. Okay. And I think they had gone and just, like, yeah. shot somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it was going to be, like, a big cover-up thing, but I right, think right, right. he thought that they were just going to, you know, shoot him. Yeah. But, you know, so he turns himself in. He gets out a couple weeks later on 75 grand bail. Right. So Dutch was facing trial, and the prosecution had a hell of a case. U.S. Attorney Thomas Dewey had worked on it with a team of rock stars. Thomas Dewey had a reputation for being... Do you know Thomas Dewey? Yeah. You do? I didn't know. He's the guy that went against Truman. I know. I know. Eventually, okay. (laughs) We'll get to it. But anyway, so he had this reputation for being extraordinarily hardworking, intelligent, and honest. Yeah. He'd gone after Bob Moss's before, and he was prepared to do it again. He wanted to get Dutch Schultz. Mm-hmm. So he developed the case against Dutch. But obviously, like, a ton of time passed between when the case was prepared and when it was tried. So by the time the case was to be argued, 
He'd gone into private practice. Uh-huh. So the prosecution's case was argued by John McEvers. But before they could even get started, Dutch's defense was like, uh, 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 change of venue, please. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see, our client has been a total shithead in New York City. Yeah. We can't be tried in New York City. <laughs> we'll never get a fair shot. Yeah. So this, this was smart. Absolutely, they needed a change of yeah. venue. Because, first of all, around this time, the public was starting to get really sick of organized crime. Like, everyone was starting to hate it. And if he was going to be tried in New York City, he was going down for sure. Yeah. So his defense asked for a change of venue, and they got one. His trial was held in Syracuse, New York. Mm -hmm. So the prosecution presented their case. They talked about bribes. They talked about illegal income he had coming in. They talked about how he hadn't paid shit in taxes. Yada, yada, yada. They dotted their I's. They crossed their T's. And then it was the defense's turn. Mm -hmm. The defense took three hours. Oh, good. Are you ready? I am so ready. Here was the defense. The prosecution was absolutely right. What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Dutch's income was huge. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was actually a little bigger than they thought it was. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't didn't pay taxes on any of it. That's for sure. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. But you see... That was not Dutch's fault. Okay. He didn't pay taxes because his lawyers said he didn't have to. You see, he made his income illegally. Mm -hmm. And his attorneys said that you shouldn't file tax returns on money you earn illegally. Mm. So that's what his lawyers told him, and Dutch believed his lawyers. But obviously, obviously, hey, when the government came a-knockin', Asking for money, Dutch had been all too happy to offer it. He tried to offer them a hundred thousand dollars, and they turned him down. He tried to make this thing right, but the government was being a bunch of shitheads about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Brandy, if there was a victim here, <laughs> oh no, <laughs> it was Dutch. Oh no. Yes! No. Yes. He was just the victim of bad legal advice. Mm, was he? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Guess they hadn't heard about the Supreme Court decision. Yeah. <laughs> the jury deliberated for two days. But after those two days, they came out and they were like, hey, we are deadlocked. <gasps> I believe it was seven to five in favor wow. of conviction. And they uh, it just wasn't happening. They couldn't reach a, a decision. Wow. The prosecution was pissed. Yeah. But they were like, you know what? Who cares? Let's do it again. We have to get this guy. Yeah. I believe... I believe that Dewey had worked on this case, built this case up for like two years. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a big deal. Once again, Dutch's lawyers were like... Okay, we can do another trial, but please not in New York City. And a judge acquiesced. Dutch Schultz's second trial was held in Malone, New York. Mm. Leave me Malone. (laughs) Malone was a small town, a small rural town close to Canada. 
Probably still is. Probably, yeah, I'm guessing it's still close to Canada. <laughs> they took it up on stilts. Now it's in California. <laughs> Dutch and his defense team were thrilled. Yeah. Immediately, Dutch hauled ass to Malone, and he was like, oh, hey, everybody, I'm just a nice little country boy. I'm just like you. Oh, what's that? You want some money? Here, have some. Oh, my gosh. Okay. This is this is just fucking disgusting. He held parties. Everyone was invited. Yeah. Of course. Of course they were. Um, he brought toys to sick children. He donated money to local businesses. He was giving out money right and left. People loved him. Why wouldn't you? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. By the time his second trial began, in the summer of 1935, the people of Malone knew him and loved of him. Of course they did. I believe at some point um, the prosecution caught wind of this and, like, he got locked up. But, like, you've, already spread, yeah. you've already spread the money all over Malone. Yeah. So, again... Prosecution's case was the same. The defense's argument was the same. The jury went into deliberation for two days again. And they found him... Not guilty. Of course not. They fucking love him now. Everyone's best friend? No, not guilty. The judge was livid. Oh my gosh. He told the jury... And I'm not going to read you the whole thing. Because, I mean, the judge went off on (laughs) this jury. But he said, Your verdict is such that it shakes the confidence of law-abiding people in integrity and truth. It will be apparent to all who have followed the evidence in this case that you have reached a verdict based not on the evidence, but on some other reason. Wow. Then he called them all shitheads. (laughs) (laughs) The judge was right. Anyone who cared at all about truth and justice was livid about this verdict. It was said that it wasn't safe for Dutch to come back to New York City again because, like, the officials there were so mad. They were like, we will get you. Mm. Dutch Schultz had just bought his way out of prison. Mm -hmm. But his victory was kind of bittersweet because thanks to these two trials and the time he spent kind of in hiding, his business had suffered. Yeah. Members of his gang were pissed off at him because he'd done this shitty thing. He had tried to cut their pay mm-hmm. by being like, oh, uh, all this legal trouble, it's just really draining me, so I need you guys to all take a pay cut. And they were like, but dude, we we work with you. We know you have a ton of money. Yeah. We know you don't have to cut our pay. Yeah. So he tried to lie to these guys he couldn't oh lie to, so gosh. they were pissed. Meanwhile, the other mob bosses started trying to kind of move in on his territory because he'd been out of the power out of the picture so long. Mm-hmm. He was still powerful, but not nearly as powerful as he once was. Mm-hmm. So he's on shaky ground, and to make matters worse, Thomas Dewey, the man who'd built that tax evasion case against him, was no longer in private practice. Mm-hmm. He'd just been appointed special prosecutor. And he had it in for Dutch. Yeah. He loved the cut of his jib. <laughs> so, <laughs> he knew about Dutch's bullshit with restaurants. And he knew that Dutch had murdered someone for stealing money from mm-hmm. him. And he was going to get him. But. So. Dutch was like, 
oh crap. He was terrified. So he called an emergency meeting of all the mob bosses. And this meeting was apparently called the commission. Anyway, so he's like, hey, everyone, it's me. I need your permission to murder Thomas Dewey. Oh, my gosh. And initially, a few of them were like, yeah, sure, whatever, fine. But the smarter ones were like, hey, dumb dumb, are you crazy? You can't do that. No, if one of us kills Thomas Dewey, if one of us orders a hit on Thomas Dewey, we are going to have the full power of the U.S. government breathing down all of our necks. Yeah. This is your worst idea. Yeah. Not since the diarrhea, or diarrhea, gonorrhea <laughs> bandage. Diarrhea bandage, is that worse or better? Better, don't you think? I mean, you're not going to go blind from It'd diarrhea. It'd be easier to get diarrhea bandages. <laughs> sure would be. Might be uh, if he was a frugal mob boss. <laughs> Wait, you think he paid for it? For gonorrhea-soaked bandages? How is he going to get that? I'm sure they... I mean, he's got to tip off some hospital dude and be like, "Here are the bandages. Oh, Find well, some gonorrhea." He, like a, he can make his own diarrhea. A loose woman on his staff. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking, yeah, they probably dabbled in prostitution, yeah. right? So, yeah, somebody. Plus, all these guys had syphilis and all kinds of stuff. So. Yeah, look, Al Capone died of syphilis practically. He practically died of a stroke, but. <laughs> <laughs> so, they're like. No, 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 no. Bad idea. They took a vote, and they unanimously agreed that, no, Dutch Schultz could not have Thomas Dewey killed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. But um, word got out yeah. that Dutch had gone behind their backs, and he'd apparently hired an assassin to stake out Thomas Dewey's apartment building. But that assassin went and snitched on Dutch to the other mob bosses and was like, hey, out of respect. (laughs) (laughs) So the mob bosses gathered together, this time without Dutch, and they talked it over, and they agreed unanimously. We gotta take out Dutch? Yeah. Ooh! Yeah. Wow. So I read something that was like, this was a very big decision. Not since 1931 had the mob decided to do this, and I was like, okay, that was only four years prior. (laughs) (laughs) So... At 10.15, on October 23rd, 1935, Dutch was having dinner at the Palace Chop House in Newark, New Jersey, which was torn down in 20, 2008, so don't, don't even bother. I know, I know. Is there a Marriott there now? Probably. <laughs> Everything's a Marriott. <laughs> he was there with his bodyguard, his right-hand man, and his accountant. And when he got up to go to the bathroom, two gunmen burst into the restaurant. They shot all four men, and the men were rushed to the hospital. So this is kind of a funny story. And I saw this... Hilarious! No! (laughs) Wait for it, damn it! I saw it a couple different ways. But the version I like is that, you know, he's in this ambulance. There's, like, an intern in the ambulance. Dutch knows he's going to die. And, of course, he's got, like, three grand just in his pocket. Yeah. So he gives the three grand to the intern, because he's like, I'm going to die. It doesn't matter. Here, enjoy. And the guy's like, wow, thanks so much. But then they take Dutch in for surgery, and he's looking pretty good. And the intern was so terrified. He gave the money back. Gave the money back. <laughs> but Dutch did die uh-huh. less than 24 hours after he'd been shot. Okay, I'm including this part just because everyone else seems to think, it, think it's necessary. His last words were kind of weird. Mm-hmm. To me, it's like, okay, he was like, he was out of his mind. 
but it's inspired a lot of different writing and stuff. So okay. here are his last words. A boy has never wept, nor dashed a thousand kin. You can play jacks, and girls do that with a softball and do tricks with it. Oh, oh, dog biscuit. And when he is happy, he doesn't get snappy. What the fuck? I know. I'm like, what? <laughs> Why are we looking into this? I don't know. <laughs> I was just delusional. I know, right? <laughs> now, what do you think he means by dog biscuit? <laughs> Thomas Dewey would go on to become a major figure in American politics. Yes, Brandy knows. He became governor of New York. In 1944, he ran against Franklin Roosevelt for president. Lost. Lost. Uh, Loser. (laughs) (laughs) But he got the Republican Party's nomination again for the next presidential election. And in 1948, he ran against Harry Truman. Lost. Lost. Although the newspaper yes. said, yes. So Dewey defeats Truman. Yeah. So I, so I was, you know, reading this stuff, and I, I hadn't heard of Thomas Dewey, but then I remembered that headline. So there's this famous picture. You guys have all seen him. It's Harry Truman on election night. He's holding up this newspaper that says Dewey defeats Truman, and he's got this shit-eating grin on his <laughs> <Yes>. face because <laughs> Dewey did not did defeat not defeat Truman. Truman. There should have been another picture of Dewey holding the newspaper <laughs> like, oh, my. We're big fans of Truman around here. He's our local. He's our, local yeah, he's hero. our local. Although, I gotta say, he was, he was propelled into that seat by the mob. Yeah. And poor, poor Dewey, like, was it, was anti mob. Anti mob. So now I'm kind of like, geez. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> but back to Dutch Schultz. He's dead already. But there is one crazy thing about this story. Shortly before his death. Yeah, dog biscuits, softball, (laughs) jacks. What does it all mean? (laughs) (laughs) When he knew he was going to go to prison for something. He asked that an airtight, waterproof safe be made for him. He filled it with $7 million in cash and bonds. Then he and his bodyguard drove somewhere in upstate New York and they hid it somewhere. Then they were both murdered. Oh my gosh. To this day. No one's ever found it? No. People still search for this thing because it's somewhere. Oh my gosh. Um, But it has not been found. (gasps) And that's the story of Bob Moss, Dutch Schultz. I never heard of him. I hadn't either. I thought it was so fascinating. It was excellent. Ugh. I loved it. Oh, this was good. This oh, was yeah, really fun. This is fun. Thank you to those who voted and picked Bob Mosses over Art Heist. I I gotta say, I was really disappointed that Art Heist <laughs> lost. <laughs> and you were like, <laughs> ladies, are you ready for some questions? Oh, are we? Where are these coming from? My God. They're coming from the LGTC podcast Discord server. How do you get in the Discord, Kristen? For just $5 a month, you can join at the appellate court level. That gets you into the Discord and it gets you bonus episodes. Mm. $7 level, more stuff. Excellent. All right, there you go. All right, fiery one. Our local uh, dairy boy Mm -hmm. wants to know, what is everyone's favorite dairy accessory? Ooh, (laughs) coffee creamer. Dairy accessory. I like it when a cow wears that necklace from the movie Titanic. The, what the is heart it, of the, the ocean. Yeah. No, my favorite dairy accessory. 
Um, what about cheese? Is that a dairy accessory? Because I love cheese. I'm a big cheese fan. Oh. What about those little, those little wax cheese no. things? What are those called? Oh, baby bells. Baby bells. Is that I a dairy like accessory? Those. I mean, that's yeah, that's not my favorite. But. You could you could wear it on your as an earring. You could Ooh. wear it as a necklace. Yeah, a pendant. If my mom were here right now, she'd be like, "Well, that's roughly the size of some of her earrings." <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> my mom always makes fun of me for wearing huge earrings. Ah. I'm going coffee creamer. Yeah, I'm going to do cheese. Cheese? Okay. I feel like we should let everybody know that um, yesterday I did a whole day of just plant-based diet. Didn't go well, did it? My carbon emissions were really... (laughs) (laughs) Climate change is real. It is. It is happening. (laughs) The cows are a concern and I'm a concern. (laughs) Woke me up this morning. Did FYI. You, did you really wake up to yes. me farting? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, Jen Bet wants to know, would you ever consider having live show tours? Mm. Yeah, I think that'd be a blast. Kristen would shit her pants and then she'd have fun. Uh, you think so? I think probably, yeah. Once once we got going, yeah. it would be fine. But like the lead up to it, I'd be like, ah. I'd be so nervous. <laughs> so nervous. Ooh. What? Uh, I feel like I said her name wrong last time, too. Marie Sick. Anyway, she wants to know. <laughs> Not sure if you've answered this before. I need to know what your favorite Kansas City barbecue joint is. Joe's KC. Yeah. Joe's? It's the best. Joe's. She says, if it isn't Gates, I'll be upset. It's not I'm Gates. I'm sorry to upset you. It's not Gates. Uh, it's Joe's KC. I do really like Gates. Yeah, Gates but. is good. Sure. I mean, there's there's not really a barbecue joint that I don't like, but like the Z-Man sandwich at Joe's KC. No. I know. Hog heaven. <laughs> That's right, we disagree about this. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, Lady in Blonde wants to know, is anyone from Brandy's family going to guest star on the podcast? Mm. Ooh, yeah, we've talked about it. We have talked about it. Yeah. But Maybe. I've rejected it every time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe your sister? Yeah, we've talked about doing like a sister theme and having... Yeah, you guys, let us know. I haven't even talked about this with Kyla. Um, Kyla, if you're interested, let me know. Kyla and Casey. Yeah, (laughs) we talked about having our sisters on and doing like a sister theme. I think it'd be super fun. I think it'd be fun too. Mm -hmm. Anna wants to know, if the ladies are having a girls only night, what's going down? Oh, if we're having a girls only night. Okay. I mean, same thing that always happens. We eat. Yeah. We drink. We talk. We have something on TV. Yeah. Yeah. We cry at some point. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) But that happens Usually like about how much we love each other. Yes. Yeah, it's not like... (laughs) I try to hurt Brandy's feelings. (laughs) Long-term friends. Oh my God, I love you so much. Oh my God. I love you too. Hey. You know what I love about our podcast? (laughs) Okay. I'm going to tell on you. What? So we just did a weekend trip with Brandy and David, and our on our way back to the house when it was just me and you. What did you say? I said, "Boy, are my arms tired." 
What did you say about Brandy? I said Brandy's one of my best friends. Yes. Oh, you're one of my yeah. best friends too, Norm. <laughs> so there you go. You can act like, oh, it's just them being dorks. But you're a dork too, <laughs> damn it. All right. I feel like Brandy's my long lost twin. Yeah. She That's is. Yeah. She is. It's crazy. My it is twin crazy. was in Kansas the whole time. The whole time. The whole time. time. The whole time. <laughs> this is being asked by several people. Okay. What is your favorite Thanksgiving dish? Since <gasps> it is November. Okay, I gotta say, I love the sides. Oh, Any sides. Oh, the sides, absolutely. I don't sides. even Ooh, need stuffing. the turkey. Ooh, I love stuffing. Mashed potatoes. Oh, yes. But I don't like gravy, so. You know what I eat in my mashed potatoes? What? Corn. It's a very Midwest thing to mix corn in your mashed potatoes. Oh, that's not a Midwest thing. Yes, that's, it is. That's a brandy oh. thing. That's no, someone, that is a Midwest thing. That's a cafeteria lady got sloppy and like, you know, mm. the corn spilled. A little dollop of marshmallow in that mashed potato. Ooh. What? Midwest He's making classic. Fun. He's making fun of Midwest dishes. <laughs> There's marshmallow in everything. You stop it. In <laughs> jello. It, it is kind of. <laughs> what, did, what did we talk about the other day that you didn't think was real? Oh, the cottage cheese jello salad. <laughs> yeah. Okay, should we tell the people what we're thinking of? One of the things we're thinking about doing for the Supreme Court as a perk? Yeah. Okay, I think this could be really funny. So there are a lot of Midwest dishes that are just like, they'll stop your heart. And you hear the name of them and you're like, how is that a thing? But they're pretty damn good. So we're talking about doing videos, cooking videos, where we yeah. like bring Midwest classics to you. <laughs> You can make sausage brunch. Yeah, I will make, make sausage, sausage brunch. brunch. We could do the... So, okay. This is one of my favorite things my mom used to make when I was a kid. Oh, no. And it's, it's cottage cheese jello salad. It's literally cottage cheese, jello, Cool Whip, and pineapple. And it's so fucking good. Uh. <laughs> it sounds terrible. It sounds terrible. It's, it's actually delicious. <laughs> Kelly has a good question. Okay, Kelly. Oh, and pumpkin pie. When it Back comes to answer the pecan pie for me, pumpkin pie. Oh, you know what? I love a good green bean casserole. No, that's not. I'm ne- okay. What do you mean? No, no. I'm I mean answering no. for I mean myself. No. I've never tried it because I can't get past the smell of it. It smells like feet. It's that, so do the, all the good cheeses. Yeah. It smells like feet. Kelly has a very important question. All right, this could it. make or break the podcast. Ooh. Oh, okay. When it comes to toilet paper, oh, Brandy has opinions. Do you crumple it? Or fold it. Crumple. A fold. Oh, really? You crumple it? Yeah. Well, you're wasting toilet paper. What if I only crumple like one square? <laughs> really? Am I wasting? Yeah. Yeah. Because if you you're fold, losing then surface you're, area. Yeah. You're. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's true. I fold. Yeah. Too. Fold. You gotta fold. Well. Okay. I'm ashamed. <laughs> Never been more shamed. Well, and with my plant-based meals, I really need to pick a new method here. Should we do one more and call it time to do some? Oh, actually, uh, this is a good segue into some of the stuff you guys are working on. Mm. Um, Tiffanized. I know you often know exactly where some of your local cases happened, and you sometimes look up addresses on Google Earth, but have you ever physically gone to a place... Where one of your cases happened, or are there any you'd like to go to? Oh, that's such. A oh, good that's question. such a good question. <laughs> and the answer is yes. yes. We just did it this weekend. Yeah, it was so fun. It was so fun. We went to Haha ha Tonka. Mm-hmm. So, wait, should we tell them? Yeah, let's tell them. Okay. Tell them. So 
the new perk that we're going to be doing for the Supreme Court is that once a month you're going to get a fun short video and it's either going to be like what Kristen mentioned where we do like a cooking segment or something Uh like that or we're going to do something like on site and so we recorded a little on site video at Ha Ha Tonka. It was it was so much fun. We had we had a great time. Oh, it was a blast. And if, if you guys don't remember, Haha ha Tonka is the case that Brandy covered, and it's the ruins of this old mansion that's, you know, it's like a three and a half hour drive from us or something. Yeah. It was really, really cool. So we've got a ton of pictures, a ton of video. I mean, yeah, it was a blast. And Norman's going to edit it for us. It was very pretty. It was. Because it, it was it's fall. Awesome. And so all the leaves were these beautiful colors. It overlooked this beautiful body of water it was and there was birds flying around everywhere oh. it was very cool it was amazing yeah. it was a beautiful day too yeah it was awesome all right should we do supreme court inductions yes thank you everyone for your questions yeah hello everybody welcome to our supreme court inductions <laughs> i hope you're all in a different room from where you were listening to the other part of that's the podcast. right um if you're not then please get up and move to a different room now we'll mm-hmm. wait thank you so much <laughs> Uh, This week, we're still doing our uh, names and favorite movie snacks. Catherine Hobby. Tropical Swedish fish. I didn't even know that existed. Hmm. Mind blown. Norm, you you know about this? Yes. Hmm. Are they better than regular? You know, I've never had them. They're kind of hard to find around here. I've never seen them. Hmm. Sean Sippel. Nachos, but not with shredded cheese. I hear you, Sean. Michaela. Crispy M&M's and mm. popcorn. Stormy Peel. Raisinets and a small popcorn. Lizzie Caruso. No relation to Norm. Popcorn with covered... Nope. Popcorn with chocolate-covered almonds mixed in. Ooh, that sounds good. Nikki Warren. Reese's Pieces. Celeste Torrance. Popcorn, no butter, and a Diet Coke the size of a toddler. <laughs> Heather Henry. Large popcorn with enough butter to clog my arteries and a large icy with all of the flavors mixed. Oh. Mary Catherine. Goobers. It's chocolate covered peanuts and it's real. <laughs> <laughs> Just spat. Ashley Mergens. Peanut butter M&M's. Oh, yeah. Welcome, Welcome to the Supreme Court. Oh my gosh, guys. Thank you so much for your support. We appreciate it. So much. If you're looking for other ways, <laughs> Norman. <laughs> if you're looking for other ways to support us, please find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, YouTube, um, of course, Patreon. Uh, once you've found us, all of those places, please head on over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. And then also make sure you join us next week when we'll be experts on two whole new topics. Podcast adjourned. And now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got my info from the book The Last Testament of Lucky Luciano, The Mafia Story in His Own Words by Martin Ghosh and Richard Hammer, Wikipedia, HistoryNet.com, All Things Interesting, and Newspapers.com. 
and I got my info from the crime lair from <laughs> from the crime library, famoustrials.com, FBI Gov, and Wikipedia. For a full list of our sources, visit lgtcpodcast.com. Any errors are of course ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff. <laughs>